the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Matt Mayer, OpportunityOhio.org, uh, president of Opportunity Ohio and a contributor to The Spectator. Matt, thanks for being on the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Matt, you've got a piece in The Spectator called Why Trump Lost. Putting aside for the moment the fact that he hasn't quite lost yet, although, uh, like you, I, I think it's pretty much a, a foregone conclusion. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about what happened this year and why it uh, seemingly has not turned out as well as uh, as 2016, starting with the fact that you, like me, predicted that Trump was going to win. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, looking at uh, all the data that you had and being in a state uh, as you are, like Ohio, that is the battleground kind of predictor of presidents kind of state, you know, you just – the sentiment was he was going to squeak out a, an electoral victory by about 305, you know, 295, something in that ballpark. Um, so the results that ended up coming in after election night have kind of twisted that a bit around and surprised me. I'm not sure about you, but, you know, in some of the results just still don't quite make sense, given what else happened uh, in the country uh, on the election. Yeah, and I mean, I, I I do believe that there was a quite a bit of uh, a voter fraud going on, a lot of irregularities, but but putting that to the side for the time being, in, in your in your column here, why Trump lost? Um, you know, one obvious fact is that Republicans uh, generally did well. You know, Republicans gained seats in the House, uh, probably have held the Senate, although Georgia is going to ultimately decide that. Uh, but uh, Joe Biden, if, if he did indeed win, had had zero coattails. So so let's kind of walk through the reasons, at least as you laid them out in your in your spectator piece, uh, why uh, uh, Trump's narrow victory in 2016 seems to have been reversed, starting with uh, Trump fatigue. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, given what you just said, right, we at least held held our ground for the most part in the Senate. Uh, we could end up losing maybe one seat uh, if, if things are well in Georgia, uh, gained a good chunk of seats in the House. And it's not just that we gained seats in the House, right? We flipped a lot of seats. And the Democrats, as far as of now, have only flipped three seats. Uh, two of those were North Carolina, where they did that redistricting, if you recall, that rejiggered the, the race to, to benefit them. Um, so, so those make sense that they, they got that. So essentially... Other than the two seats in North Carolina, the Dems, in terms of you know, 435 you know seats, were able were able to flip just one in the entire country, which which would indicate uh, when you look at state legislatures we took over, the governorship we took over, that it was a very strong night for Republicans, except for Trump. So I think what that means is America likes Trump's policies. They just were enough of them, and enough places were tired of the Trump drama that they, they voted for Biden, but down ticket Republican the rest of the way. 
I, I think you're right about that, Matt. And I, I do think that Trump fatigue is a factor. I got to tell you, I've been a major supporter of Trump's really from the beginning of his administration. Uh, I think he's done a terrific job as president, but I, <laughs> I've got some fatigue. <laughs> you know, I can really understand. Uh, and it's not mostly Trump's fault. You know, it's mostly the, the endless attacks on him. Uh, but obviously he's a lightning. Rod. A lot of people were, were tired of the, uh, were tired of the drama. But, but, but the, yeah, the, I mean, look, I'm like, like you, I'm a big supporter. A lot of my friends are, um, and especially of the policies, right? I think the policies, frankly, have, been stronger than than what even Reagan put in place. Uh, I, I, I could argue, but but even I found myself on the Twitter stuff on some of the attacks, like on John McCain, where you're just like, oh my gosh, like I, I got tired of having to defend the the personality rather than the policies, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think you're not the only one. Now, the second thing you itemized in your column was four years of pounding in the press. And, and I, we really need to emphasize this. I mean, here's a guy, uh, every time anybody looked at a newspaper for the last four years, the headlines they would see were anti-Trump. Every newspaper in the country. You know, every all, all the broadcast TV networks, uh, uh, you know, the newspapers. And, and um in that context, it's kind of amazing that Trump held up as well as he did. It's actually utterly amazing. I mean, the way I like to frame this is, so Trump in four years was getting about 90% or more negative news coverage, right? And to give you a perspective, in eight years, Obama ended up getting about 80% positive news coverage, okay? So did very little wrong, according to the media, and Trump did virtually everything wrong. For the, you know, so Trump, Obama, nothing, nothing, nothing wrong. Trump virtually everything wrong. And still, the man barely lost his reelection. And I like to say, can you imagine if instead of 90 percent negative, it was, quote, only 60 percent negative for four years? My guess is he would have easily won reelection. But a lot of what ended up happening in terms of that Trump fatigue, uh, where, you know, your suburban women, the, 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 the folks that kind of walked away from him. In many ways, they walked away, I think, because they were driven away by the media's constant negative narrative about Russia, about you know, tra- you know Trump being a, a white supremacist, which he's not, right? I mean, they even said the man wanted to sleep with his own daughter. I mean, that, like just nothing was beneath them to say and attack him on. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's really amazing that with, as you point out, Obama getting overwhelmingly positive coverage, uh, Trump getting virtually nothing except negative coverage trump got more votes in this election than obama ever got you know that's kind of an extraordinary achievement that's exactly and keep in mind right this gets back to this broader narrative i mean you know he only looks like he's going to lose nationwide popular vote by three and a half percent to to biden which in all accounts that means on the state-by-state basis he should have been he should have actually won a fairly comfortable electoral margin victory so that's what's again one of those odd things about the election was closer than people thought but yet he still somehow lost now, let's go to the third uh, factor that you itemized as reasons for the presidential election's outcome. And this is one that needs to be talked about more. And that is the presence of the libertarian Joe Jorgensen on the ballot in, in what, most, if not all states. And there were states where the libertarian candidate really hurt Trump. Oh, without a doubt. In, in Georgia, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, I mean, her vote total in most of those states is greater than the delta between Trump and Biden. So if you presume, like I do, that most libertarians who vote, if they didn't have the libertarian choice, would have voted for Trump. You know, it's just like in 2016 when Jill Stein kind of took votes away from Hillary that hurt her. I think it's clear the libertarian you know, candidate 
took 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 Trump out this time. And and again, I say to my libertarian friends, congratulations, you just helped elect a guy that will do more to undermine individual liberty than Trump would ever do. You know, I, I, I understand the appeal of libertarianism, and, and I would argue that every strand of American conservatism is largely libertarian. And in fact, you could, you could define the different types of American conservatism in terms of how that libertarian instinct manifests itself, you know, but they all have got that libertarian core. And, and, and so I understand the appeal of libertarianism. I do not understand the appeal of the libertarian totally agree. party. Totally agree. Do not understand. Yeah, I totally it because... agree. I, yeah, there's lots of lots of things I I I, I you know, believe in that are libertarian ideas, right? But but we live in a in a two party system, whether you like it or not. We're not Europe. One percent doesn't get you a seat in Parliament. If you vote for a, a third party candidate, you're throwing away your vote, or in some cases, helping the other side or a side more more uh, antagonistic to your views win. And that's what happened in in 2020. Yeah, that is entirely foreseeable and. Um... And predictable. And then the last item you itemize, you've got about um, uh, two minutes left in this segment, Matt, but the last item you itemize is an interesting one to me, and that is the fact that the Atlanta metropolitan area has come to really dominate uh, Georgia's vote. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, Biden ran up, you know, my last tally was about a 640,000 vote margin in the counties, the eight counties surrounding uh, Atlanta. In comparison, in the 21 other counties in Georgia that he won, he only gained about 140,000 vote margin. So, so it's a huge swing in that city. And what I what I try to say now is, look, if, if the Republicans want to try to win Georgia in presidential elections going forward and even these two Senate seats coming up, they better understand that it looks more and more like Atlanta is becoming like Chicago and Illinois and New York City and New York with giving such enormous vote totals to the Democrat candidates statewide that the rest of the votes in the state, even though they're red, most of the other places can't possibly make up the margin. So that, that's something that the Republican Party is going to need to figure out or it's going to start losing Georgia consistently in statewide elections. And it's a twofold problem. One is that there are, in fact, a lot of blue votes in the Atlanta metro area. But the second is that these large urban centers are the haven for voter fraud. And that's that's a big factor. No, that's exactly right. And this is what we're going to discover, how much voter fraud there might, there was uh, when it all boils down to the to the to the uh, investigations they're going to do the votes, the vote recounts they're going to do, and so you know that's the piece we just have to keep in mind is you know when you have that many votes and mail-in ballot becomes the way it happens, you have to just understand there's going to be fraud, and we know there is, but how much is there or was there? That's the piece that we have to figure out, right? We are up against a break here. We're, we're going to be uh, back with more from Matt Mayer after these messages. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with uh, Matt Mayer, president of OpportunityOhio.org and a contributor to The Spectator. Matt, you've got another piece in The Spectator uh, called The Trumpist Agenda Going Forward. And I think it speaks to what's 
on the minds of of a lot of uh, of conservatives and Republicans, uh, is assuming that uh, uh, Trump is more or less departing the stage. He's not going to go away. Uh, but but what are the elements of Trumpism uh, that you see uh, moving forward? Well, so I, you know, I think from a broad standpoint, uh, when you think about Trumpism, right? I think what you have to look at is, you know, a a trade policy that focuses on putting the worker first and what's best for America first and realizing that, look, you know, we don't like tariffs necessarily as, as, as conservatives, but sometimes tariffs in the short term are critical to get the other side to the table so you can eliminate them in the long term on both sides of the aisle and get better, fair trade negotiations. And I think that's what he did with NAFTA and was doing with, with China uh, in that first phase of the deal. I think it also means you know, again, lower taxes, uh, an attack on the regulatory state, especially for farmers and small businesses that, you know, the Obama folks really amped up regulations to a degree, that, which is why we had such a stagnant recovery. It's the focus on the federal judiciary and making sure that they're good originalist uh, on the bench, whether it's the appellate court or the Supreme Court, you know, in, in this in the case of uh, Amy Coney Barrett. You know, it, it's the, the continued movement uh, towards a kind of federalism system where states have a little bit more power it's it's energy in, in independence because that's both good for america from a from a job standpoint from a from a consumption standpoint from a cost standpoint but also from a national security standpoint to be untied from the middle east to the degree we now are so there are a lot of elements to trumpism and i think you know that's what the voters i think seem to support uh and they just felt they wanted to do that without trump uh in the white house you know, it's interesting, Matt, because when you tick off the elements of of Trumpism, it's pretty much a traditional conservative agenda, right? I mean, less regulation, lower taxes, federalism, uh, conservative judges and justices in the federal judiciary. You know, there, there's there's nothing about that um, that outline that traditional conservatives uh, haven't been arguing for for a long time. No, you're absolutely right. I think where there's a difference is in the trade negotiation area, the trade area where, you know, Republicans tend to hate tariffs and oppose all kinds of tariffs. And, and Trump has used those fairly effectively, I think. Uh, and so that that would be one area. And then the second area really is on how he approached uh, foreign policy in terms of things like NATO uh, in other countries where, you know, Republican establishment folks have been very Davos-oriented. Uh, and I think Trump kind of really looked down upon the Davos crowd in the in the you know the supranational organizations like the UN, the WTO, uh, the WHO, these groups that again you know put 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 every country's interest ahead of America's. And Trump didn't do that. So that's where things like you know making NATO partners come to the table to start paying their fair share. And again, I, I say this uh, with all seriousness. You know, look, they're gonna they're gonna fet Joe Biden, Joe Biden, and Biden's gonna love it because. You know, the Europeans, are they want to get back to America taxpayers paying the share of NATO, uh, their defense, so that they can divert their funds to social welfare programs that they have in Europe while, you know, we defend them from everything under the sun. And I think Trump didn't want to have any of that. And, and so too often Republicans have not been strong enough on, on in those arenas where I think Trump really was. I think that's exactly right, Matt. And to me, one of the most revealing things about the Trump presidency is, you know, Trump ran on the slogan, America first. And I heard that. And I thought, well, yeah, that sounds like the job description of the president. That's what he's supposed to do. Right. Keep, put America yeah, first. Put American citizens that's first. That's exactly right. And, and, and liberals that's consider exactly that to right. be and a that's scandal. These folks out of. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
Well, but the Democrats considered that to be a scandal that a president would put America first. I thought that was really clarifying. And I think you're absolutely right that that what distinguishes Trump from a lot of other conservative Republicans is that orientation, America first. And we saw it in trade. We saw it in the fact that he that he ran a, a strong foreign policy. You know, you can avoid overseas conflicts by being weak and knuckling under, you know. Uh, but he didn't do that. Yeah, no, he, no he, he, he didn't. He didn't, John. And, and here's what's important, right? Everybody forgets the, that, that America first. And Trump said this multiple times. That, that's not some jingoistic, over, overtly nationalistic position, because he would always say, but I fully expect that our, you know, our opponents, uh, allies, enemies, you name it, are going to put their countries first. And I expect when we negotiate that that's their position, and I respect them for that. But but I'm putting America first now instead of putting other countries and other interests first. And that's why he wanted to get us out of Afghanistan and out of Iraq and less tangled into the Middle East, because I think he knew we've been spending American blood and treasure for places that don't have the national security impact today that they did 20 years ago. And, and I think he's right about that. And, you know, when he when he fired Esper from the Defense Department you know, a week ago. You know, people just like, oh, I can't believe he did that. And it's like, well, it was clear you knew why, because Esper was going to drag his feet to delay pulling everybody out of Afghanistan before his term was over. And I think Trump wants those troops out of Afghanistan before January 20th at noon so that he can say, we, I got America out of that war that made no sense for us to be there anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're right about trade, too. Trump and, and Trump didn't keep this a secret. You know, he said over and over, look, I'm a free trader. Uh, and when we t- have tariff negotiations, the first thing I'll say is, well, how about if we just take them all to zero on all sides? Oh, no, you know, nobody wants to do that. And and um, and, and so I think you're right. I think that, um, you know, he selectively used tariffs to get better uh, trade arrangements with uh, countries like Canada and Mexico, redoing NAFTA, and also with China. Yeah, and I think, look, John, this is really important, right? Because, you know, you deal with this and I deal with this, right? All these never-Trumpers, the Lincoln Project, the, you know, my former governor, John Kasich, who, you know, did a, did a poor job here in Ohio for eight years. But, you know, let me just say, you know, I, I'm astounded at conservatives, Republicans, those on the right, who, 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 who voted for Biden, and wanted Biden when if you if you and I always say, like, you know, you've got to go below the president and see what his administration had, has accomplished. Right. Because there are men and women, thousands of them that have been working hard for four years to put in place a very conservative agenda. I would argue one possibly more conservative and successful than Reagan eight years in office. And 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 I would say, what in Lord's name do you think a Biden or Clinton administration would have done or will do? Why would you possibly vote against Trump? Yes, there's all the drama that comes with Trump, but it's underneath him that the conservative policies that we have been fighting for for our lifetimes have been getting done, actually done. The think tank stuff, AEI and Heritage, the the tens of millions they've spent every year to get virtually nothing done, started getting done under Trump. That is an important piece that my friends that on the right that were in that Never Trump Lincoln Project you know, Trump's the bad guy movement. Just I fail to understand how their brain didn't get around that very basic idea. I don't think history will be kind to the never Trumpers. And I think as we go forward, Matt, that your points are, are very well taken. I think that that when the dust settles, people are going to look back at Trump's four years in office as a highly successful term that really points the way to uh, the direction that uh, conservatives and Republicans should be going in the future. 
We got to run to a break, uh, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by Michael Warren Davis, the editor in chief of Crisis Magazine. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Michael Warren Davis, who is the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. Michael, thanks for being on the program. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Michael, why don't we start by talking a little bit about Crisis Magazine? Uh, tell us about about Crisis. What kind of what kind of publication is it? Yeah, sure. Well, it's a it's a Catholic journal of uh, current events, analysis, and commentary. It was founded in 1984 by uh, two great Catholic intellectuals, uh, Michael Novak and Ralph McInerney, uh, and it's uh, it's been published almost continuously since then. Uh, and our per, I, we fill a, a fairly unique niche in the market, which is not many Catholic publications actually do focus on, you know, the intersection of politics and culture as well as religion um, from an explicitly orthodox, conservative Catholic angle. So that is our mission. So I want to ask you about a piece that you've got in, in your magazine, Crisis. Uh, it's called Donald Trump and the Politics of Charity. Maybe start, Michael, by just telling us, what do you mean by the politics of charity? Well, that's a very good question, because I didn't actually define it very well in the piece, and I, uh, I've been looking for an opportunity to follow up. Uh, so we, as Catholics and as Christians, you know, we have the, the, the Christ gave us the two greatest commandments. Um, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Um, above all other things. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what human beings are made for. We're made to love. Um, you know, this is the sarcastic question that Cain asks God when um, God says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain says, well, what am I, my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, Cain's the bad guy. You know, the answer is yes, I am my brother's keeper. I, I'm supposed to love my brother, my fellow man, my neighbor. I'm supposed to I'm supposed to feel accountable to him. I'm supposed to feel like I have a vested interest in his well-being. Uh, and that's not really what we do in America for the most part. Uh, and, uh, you know, the left talks about love. The left talks about, uh, you know, wanting to take care of people. Uh, and that's all well and good. But what they mean by that usually is, uh, you know, raising taxes and giving handouts. They don't mean, you know, uh, uh, taking care of, you know, they, they don't. It's it's the old you know teach a man to fish and he'll uh, he'll 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 be able to eat for the rest of his life. That's what we, that's what our goal should be. Uh, and so the the alternatives the two alternatives we seem to have in American politics for a very long time were the laissez-faire free market Republicans who said like Cain you know what am I my brother's keeper I'm not you know I don't have to I don't have any responsibility to anyone except for myself. We they call that rational self-interest. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the, the Democrats, the liberal progressives and socialists, uh, who are welfareists. They believe that the, the solution to poverty is to just put people on the dole. And of course, uh, from a Christian perspective, and particularly a Catholic perspective, neither of those are tenable. 
Uh, and so Donald Trump comes along, and he has this idea that's not quite novel. Pat Buchanan pitched something very similar in 1992, uh, but, but hadn't been heard in the United States for a very long time, which is we're not going to put people in a position of dependence. We're not going to, we're not going to infantilize people by making them dependent on the nanny state, but we're not going to abandon them either. We're not going to turn a blind eye to the... Uh, to the you know the the, the 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 poor black folk in in Detroit and the poor white folk in West Virginia we're not going to we are responsible for them those are our brothers and we're their keeper so what we're going to do is we're going to reverse all the disastrous economic decisions that have been made over the last decades that have resulted in jobs being sent over to the to Asia and South America uh, particularly China um, that have caused massive economic devastation. Uh, in major cities and in the and in the country, uh, you know, the rural in rural America, and we're going to bring those jobs back. We're going to bring back good, decent, well-paying jobs, so men and women have the opportunity to earn an honest living for themselves. They're not going to starve, and they're not going to be dependent on the government. They are going to have the decent human dignity of being able to do a hard day's work and receive a fair wage for that work. And that's what I mean by the politics of charity. Uh, is that this, and if you read the uh, what we call Catholic social teaching, the, the letters that popes and saints have written about how we ought to govern a nation, this is exactly what they were talking about. The right, of the human right to a fair, to a, a safe job and a fair wage. And that is what Donald, Donald Trump has brought us measurably closer to that vision. And it turns out uh, that what you've described as the politics of, of charity uh, were very popular with uh, with non-white voters, where, where Trump did better than any Republican presidential nominee has done in a long time. We're going to go to a break now, Michael, and we're going to come back and, and talk about that uh, after these messages. We're talking with Michael Warren Davis, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. Dan Proft Show. We are back with Michael Warren Davis, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. Michael, before the break, you were describing what, what you've laid out in Crisis Magazine as the politics of of charity, and we had just noted that, um, that President Trump uh, did quite well, relatively well, in this this year's election with non-white voters. Talk talk about that a little, if you would. Yeah, for sure. Well, so Donald Trump uh, did, as you say, he did better with non-white voters than any Republican presidential nominee since 1964. Uh, That's not just a statistic. That's a very significant year. 1964 is the year that the Republican Party nominated Barry Goldwater, who uh, was called Mr. Conservative. And I, I dispute that label. I don't think that he was a real conservative. Um, but his conservatism, what they meant by conservatism was this kind of libertarian, laissez-faire economic policy. And it was wildly unpopular with, uh, with, with a lot of voters, um, but particularly non-white voters. And it led to the Republican Party shedding most of its support from non-whites. And it became very dependent on white vote, white affluent, relatively affluent voters. 
for for years and years, the Republican Party has been known as that as the party of you know slashing taxes, slashing benefits, but continuing to outsource jobs overseas, leaving the 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 working class basically to say I have no solution except to vote for Democrats who are at least going to raise taxes on those corporations that are taking my jobs away and let me have a welfare check. But you know, and this is where the uh, you know a lot of a lot of dissident black speakers, intellectuals who oppose the Democratic Party, they talk about Democrats keeping black voters on the plantation. Very touchy metaphor, but, you know, it, it, but what they mean by that is, you know, it, it's keeping black voters dependent on the government. And that is demonstrably true. That certainly did happen. It also happened with working class white voters. Uh, and those are two groups that have uh, shifted to the Republican Party rapidly. Uh, you know, the, it, we talk about the, the Democrats' base being um, blue-collar white people and then non-whites. Um, but Donald Trump is rapidly bringing those people back into the Republican Party uh, for the very simple reason that neither, you know, black folk nor poor white folk want to be dependent on the government. They want, again, they want to be able to stand on their own two feet. They want to be able to make a living for themselves. That uh, that message speaks very clearly to voters who are really hurting in this economy, and uh, and it is it is really an act of love that's um, that's inspiring uh, the president and those around him to fight to bring those jobs back to this country. Well, and of course, uh, Trump's policies were successful in that regard. Uh, you know, we saw rising wages for uh, you know middle and working class uh, people for the first time in in decades. So they weren't falling for yeah. some, some kind of a mirage when they supported Trump. You know, they were they were voting with their uh, with their pocketbooks. And by the way, one of the things you point out, uh, Michael, in in your piece in in Crisis Magazine, is that uh, the reason why we didn't see a real blue wave this year is that President Trump increased his vote totals from every demographic group except old white men. That's right. Well, that just goes to show that all of the uh, all of the media, the left wing media hype about Trump being a white nationalist, no one was buying it except for <laughs> affluent white people. We knew that already. These diversity training programs that you see only happen at big corporations like Shell, and you know the Black Lives Matter groups that you saw gathering in cities, the ones that were actually wreaking serious havoc. Most of them weren't actually black. Most of them were um, middle class white people, eighteen to twenty five, uh, wearing you know. Con- brand new Converse Nike sneakers and and carrying brand new iPhones. Um, so this the, the woke social justice thing is really just a it's a it's a fad among uh, middle class upper middle class white people. So when the the, the prophets of the, the Church of Woke came out and said that Donald Trump was uh, was a neo Nazi who was going to you know throw all non white people out of the country, the only, the only people who bought that were the people that were already buying into the social justice narrative. Uh, you know, I, poor people, regardless of their race, but in this case, statistically, interestingly, uh, non-white voters, you know, looked around and said, actually, I'm doing better now than I was under Obama or George Bush. Uh, you know, I, I seem to be doing pretty well. I, I don't think this is white nationalism. I don't think this government is out to get me. And so, you know, voters, you know, the votes don't lie. The vote, those voters flock to Donald Trump in record numbers. Yeah, and it turns out that the the racism of the left, which I think you described as demography as destiny, you know, skin color is the all important thing. That's not a very popular position, and in particular, it's not very popular with uh, non-white voters. Well, who wants to think of themselves that way? It's grossly dehumanizing. I think I think that most people, you know, that we and we can have absolutely we can have a discussion about uh, 
about racism in America and uh, and the persistence of, of uh, anti-black prejudice, those things certainly exist to some degree or another, and we should have a conversation about that. But I think Americans of all stripes fundamentally want to be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And they don't. They, when when some if someone says to them, "You will never get ahead in this country because of the color of your skin, because you're black." They don't want to hear that. They don't believe it. They, you know, they're not. They no one wants to just lie down and say, "Oh yes, I'm a, I'm a victim of circumstance. I'll you know I'll never get anywhere in this world. I have to. I should. I may as well just roll over and let the government take care of me. I'll let the the uh, the elite intellectuals at the New York Times fight all of my all of my political battles for me. It's not going to happen. Uh, and that this is actually this is I, I ended the piece on an optimistic note because even though we're going through this whole election debacle. Uh, I'm, not, I'm very, very optimistic about the future of our politics because it just goes to show that people are not buying these lies that are being put out by the uh, the, the literati, the cognizanti. They're they they were they're, they're not buy, they're not going to buy this narrative of victimization that's trying to turn people against each other again on the basis of the color of their skin, and that's very good news for all Americans. And I think one good example of that in this in this election, Michael, is the fact, what is it, Prop 16 in California that would have uh, legalized race and sex discrimination by the California state government? It was supported by yeah. Hollywood, by all the rich people, by all the big corporations, and it went down to a resounding defeat. People don't like racism. Yeah. No, they don't. And that's the interesting thing is that Hollywood, you know, California will get that law when all the decent working class folk move out and there's nothing left except for Hollywood and L.A., uh, which yeah, is and Silicon Valley, I'm afraid that would be true. But, you know, come on, just get out. Come come out and live with us in middle America. We need, you know, we need bodies. We need people to help us out here. And, uh, you know, if that's what it comes down to, if the if these if these rich liberal elites end up just sitting in their castles, you know, as the fields rot on the coast, then, you know, that's their decision. I wouldn't want to be them, though. Uh, Thank you. Michael Warren Davis, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. We're going to go to a break and be back with more on The Dan Prof Show. Listen to podcasts on the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. One of the strange aspects of this year's election, and especially this year's uh, election night, uh, was the performance of Fox News. As we all know, the media landscape, the press landscape, is stacked almost 100% against conservatives. Every newspaper in the country is liberal, with the possible exception of what the Manchester Union leader in, in New Hampshire uh, the, the broadcast networks are all liberal. Uh, the, uh, the cable networks uh, are liberal, except for Fox News. And so Fox News, along with talk radio and, and uh, a smattering of, of websites, uh, really has, has been an oasis for, for conservatives. And, um, and on election night, uh, for some reason, and, and I think you could say going, leading up to the election as well, uh, you, you could see Fox News kind of drifting off in the other direction. And maybe, you know, one sign of that was Chris Wallace and his performance in the presidential debate. 
uh, Chris Wallace was sounding a lot, a lot like his father, Mike Wallace, you know, the old liberal on, uh, on 60 Minutes uh, way back when. And, and Chris Wallace has taken a very oppositional liberal posture vis-a-vis uh, Donald Trump and his, uh, and his administration. And then when it got to election night, um, Fox News put a guy in charge of their decision desk uh, what was his name? Uh, Aaron Mishkin or something like that, uh, who was a Democrat. And this actually got publicized before the election uh, when it was announced that he was going to be running their decision desks. And people did some research. And sure enough, he's a he's a Democratic uh, donor. And and so on election night, we what did we see? Well, one thing we saw was that Fox News made a very premature call on Arizona. They called Arizona for Joe Biden when there were vast number of votes still to be counted. And uh, this Michigan guy, I believe, went on the air and defended it and said, oh, yes, you know, with all these votes left to be counted, uh, Joe Biden is going to widen his lead. These are mostly Biden votes. Well, that turned out not to be true at all. That's still not clear who's going to carry Arizona. But it is clear that that call was totally premature. And in fact, most of the uncounted votes have gone not to Biden, but to Donald Trump. And the other thing that Fox News did, again, the same decision desk, was that they predicted that the Democrats were going to expand their lead in the House of Representatives by probably five seats. Well, that didn't happen. The Republicans, in fact, have picked up seven, eight, nine uh, seats. So that prediction was was completely wrong. And and Fox News has refused to respond to questions about what it was doing, why was it off on the on these projections, why was it joining the sort of liberal mob instead of playing its uh, its its role as as an oasis. And there have been no satisfactory answers, a, a grudging acknowledgement that what happened in the House was not what Fox News predicted, and then just uh, moving on. That was Brett Baer who did that very. Very grudging acknowledgement, not an apology, but just a, an, an acknowledgement that they got the House wrong. And so a lot of conservatives are worried, and rightly so. I mean, uh, if Fox News drifts off to the left, uh, what have we got? And I think some people are starting to watch Newsmax, for example. Newsmax is on, uh, on the air now. And we'll be talking a lot more about that as the weeks go by. is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Casey Mulligan, professor of economics at the University of Chicago, Casey served as the chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors in 2018 and 2019 and is the author of the recently released You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. Casey, thanks for being on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Casey, you you wrote a a piece in The Hill recently um, uh, called uh, Biden's Economic Agenda and its effects. And even though the uh, election isn't quite official yet, I, I think it's not too soon to be looking ahead to what is Joe Biden's uh, agenda on the economy and um, and what are its fe- effects likely to be. And I think in your piece, you talked about Biden's economic agenda in, in, in four areas. Is that right? Yeah, he, ha- he has, we could call it ambitious agenda. A lot he wants to change 
Um, they're certainly in the tax area of taxes, um, energy. He wants um, to also change other regulations around labor and consumer products. And that really hits hits the economy from several directions. Um, and, and the cumulative impact of all those, his full wish list is pretty significant. I, we estimated for the middle class household it would be 6500 less they would have per year in purchasing power, either by paying more taxes or lower wages or higher prices or really the combination of all of those things. And that's kind of a big number, Casey. Let's stop and pause on that for just a moment. And, and this is work that was done by you and Kevin Hassett and, and Fitzgerald and Kalen, right? Yes. And, and your calculation was that if, 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 if the entire Biden economic agenda was actually implemented, which is not going to happen, we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes, but your assumption here is that that whole agenda actually gets put into effect. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. There were some parts of the agenda were just too fantastic to even calculate, and so we dialed them back a little bit. Like the idea that every car would be electric, we, we didn't go so far to assume every car would be electric, but that he would push us toward having mostly electric cars. Okay, so this is sort of a plausible implementation of his of his agenda. Your calculation is that it would reduce median annual family income by about $6,500 a year by the year 2030, which is not far away. That is a lot of money. Uh, that is a lot, and it's really because he's working a lot of margins um, at the same time, and they they add up, they reinforce each other. And while any one of them might not notice so easily when you're doing a lot of things, the, the cumulative effect can't be ignored. And I think your your paper also calculated that employment, the jobs, would drop by about five million uh, based on this, you know, plausible implementation of the of the Biden agenda. Yeah, and that was due to a combination of taxes, really kind of hidden taxes that in the Affordable Care Act, which it shouldn't be hidden anymore because we've known about that law for 10 years, and he wants to really expand the Affordable Care Act and amp it up. And so some of those negative employment effects we had of the Affordable Care Act would get bigger. And then also some of the regulations that he would do would be, uh, I think as the president says, they'd be job-killing. So let's kind of go walk through the, the, the four areas that you talk about in your, your piece at, at the Hill on Biden's economic agenda, and, and one of them is taxation. What, what, what exactly is Biden's uh, tax program? He wants to uh, have higher taxes on businesses, really historic increases in both on the corporate type of business they would have to pay a higher rate. He would increase the weight more than it's ever been increased before at one time. Um, and then he would also increase the tax rate on non-corporate businesses. Those would be partnership S corporations, the so-called pass-through businesses. They tend to be smaller. Um, and he would have a historic increase on their taxes as well. So is he basically uh, overturning or reversing the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that passed early in the Trump administration? That's part of it, um, but some of these high taxes on uh, non-corporate businesses actually are going beyond where we were before the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act. You know, it's really interesting to me, uh, Casey, 
during the Trump administration, we saw rapidly rising employment, record low unemployment, record jobs numbers, especially for minorities, working class people. We saw median incomes rising really for the first time in decades. And and Joe Biden wants to go in and dismantle all of that, reverse the policies that have been successful. Does he have a theory as to why it's a good idea to turn all these successful policies around? I'm not sure he has, has an idea. I, I view it as an exercise in virtue signaling. Um, and really, a Republican Congress would be a blessing for him because he could signal that he wants to do these woke things, but not actually have to do them because... I think any reasonable look at higher taxes and higher regulation, you're going to understand what the result of that, and it won't be a bigger economy. Now, I'm assuming that he probably can't get big tax increases um, through the Senate, maybe not even through the House. We'll see how that lines up when the, when the dust settles. Uh, but one thing he can do is uh, is work through the regulatory agencies. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, what, what's he going to be able to do there in the executive branch? The, I mean, there's a lot of regulation that can be done in the executive branch. Obama had that famous saying, I, I've got a, f- a phone and a pen, I'm going to use them. And that there's a wide range of things that can be done and were done during the Obama years. Um, in health care, they, they can outlaw certain health care products, especially the ones that are cheaper. Um, that's what Obama did, and we expect that Biden will do the same. And by the way, let's pause on that for a second, Casey, because this is something that I think you can't say too often. One of the things that Obamacare did was essentially to make cheap health insurance illegal, right? And then, and then its proponents pretended to be surprised when health insurance got more expensive. You know, and and that was reversed uh, in the Trump administration. There was more latitude to sell cheaper insurance. But but Joe Biden uh, wants to go back to the, I take it, the original version of Obamacare and, and again, ban the sale of cheap insurance. Is that is that basically the story? I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, it, the Democrats have been attacking when Trump allowed the cheap insurance, which they call junk. So that, that's the way they'll, they'll label it. You know, this is insurance that people really want to spend their own money on. And they, they see that as, as a value. Um, they're going to call it junk. And they're gonna they'll outlaw it, and that's not just in healthcare. There's all kinds of other industry where you, they want to outlaw the cheaper product, whether it be a cheaper car that doesn't run on electricity, whether it be a cheaper internet plan, um, you name it. They uh, they're gonna outlaw the cheaper products, cheaper financial products, um, and you know why are they doing that? Well, partly because the elite folks who who run our government don't tend to buy those cheaper products. They have enough money to to buy the brand name, so to speak. Um, and most important, the companies that are there that don't want to have competition from cheap competitors. And so they're, the companies there that are trying to stop their competition, then this is an age-old strategy in regulation. As a company, you go in there and get the government to put its uh, foot on the neck of your competitors. Yeah, you make a really interesting point in your piece in The Hill, uh, Casey, and that is that uh, the agencies, the key agencies here in the executive branch, and you tick off which ones they are, will write regulations as requested by large banks, trial lawyers, major health insurance companies, big tech companies, labor unions, drug manufacturers, and environmental 
lobbies. And a lot of people don't understand that this, these, these are major constituencies of the Democratic Party. And when you talk about big business, big tech, health insurance companies, big banks, et cetera, uh, they, they like big government. Yeah, they, they sure do. They write the rules. I mean, it, it's, it's a very natural progression that you, you know, that every business has, is complicated to, to the people who aren't in it. So the people in that business, they say, you know, you need to hand over the pen to us because we're the only ones who know what's going on. <laughs> and they end up running the thing, of course, in their own favor. And this is an age-old thing. Um, it, it, it's happened for 100 years or more, um, and it continued to happen. I saw it firsthand. And that's how one reason President Trump made a lot of opponents. <laughs> yeah, he made people unmad on Twitter, but he made a lot of these special interests very angry. He, he wasn't he, he didn't get their campaign money. He, had, he ran his first campaign on very little money, and he owed nothing to them. And he came in and, and took out their special favors in many cases. Other cases he failed. I mean, they were too powerful even for him. But uh, the special interests were very upset by this, and they want those things put back. And I'm very confident that Biden will oblige them. we we got to run to a commercial break here, but we're going to come back with more with Casey Mulligan right after these messages. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We are back on the Dan Proft Show talking with Casey Mulligan, Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago, former chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. And Casey, before the break, we were talking about uh, regulation and and the role of regulation all too often uh, in supporting big business and supporting and, and suppressing competition from smaller smaller businesses. And, and, and you were starting to say that the Trump administration had made some real progress uh, with respect to to uh, diminishing regulation. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, we had kind of a motto. In fact, we wrote a report for the health regulation called Choice and Competition. That was our, our motto and, that, and our principle. And the idea was that uh, consumers ought to be able to choose expensive product, cheaper product. It should be their choice. There should be opportunities for new businesses to come in and offer a new or different product, and there shouldn't be barriers to that. Uh, I think that one of the president's favorite Examples of this was um, in the making of generic drugs. Most drugs we take are, are generic, and but there was tight limits. Government imposed limits on how many manufacturers could make those generic drugs, which is really ridiculous. Trump got rid of those, um, and we saw prescription dr- drug prices fall for the first time in 46 years, and he was very proud of that. He wanted to cut them more. He still does, but that that's exactly what you'd expect when you allow competition, the consumer benefit. And let's pause on that one too, Casey, because that's something that I think really needs to be emphasized. I mean, for how many years have we heard politicians yammering on and on about pharmaceutical prices? You know, what can we do to reduce drug prices? And uh, of course, always without any effect. And and the Trump administration actually, uh, through regulatory reform, did bring about the first drop in in pharmaceutical prices in in decades. Yes. uh, That 
it was very impressive. And in the, in the, you know, we had arguments within the administration, lowering drug prices, should we do it with more regulation or less? And the only time we got real results was by with, with less regulation, allowing those companies to come in there. Um, and there's a lot more room for that. And that's not going to be really Biden's approach, I'm afraid. You know, one of the things that that this FDA drug deregulation experience showed us was showed the president how to do it. I mean, there's a lot of bureaucracy who doesn't want to get rid of those rules. It gives them power. It gives them influence. Um, and so when the virus came along, the president already had experience of pushing back on the FDA bureaucracy and getting them out of the way. And that was really half of this Operation Warp Speed, where we had the great news this week that a vaccine is coming in record time. That's because the president putting together that new program said, FDA, you got to get out of the way. And I know how to get you out of the way because I did it before with prescription drugs. So, um, you know, he's not getting any credit for that, but he doesn't need credit. We're all benefiting, and um, I'm certainly glad for that. So one of the things you write about in your, your piece at, at the Hill is uh, the Trump administration's use of the Congressional Review Act. That got some publicity, I think, relatively early in, in, in Trump's term, and I haven't heard too much about it lately. Talk, talk about that. Yeah, it's actually going to be important against. So the C- Congressional Review Act, you know, Obama's phone in the pen, um, and all presidents had the phone in the pen, um, they really act unilaterally, but there was an exception, and the Congressional Review Act allowed Congress to um, erase what, how the president used his phone independent in, in particular areas of Congress's choosing. Um, that had only been used once before, uh, 20 or 25 years ago, um, and President Trump did it 16 times. Uh, so that's just part of the way he got rid of Obama regulations was with that. But the fine print in there which none of us, even in the White House, paid much attention to at the time, was not only are these regulations gone, so regulations protecting uh, different industries like Google or other regulations that we got rid of, um, the agencies are never allowed to go and try to regulate that thing again, even if they get a new president. So in these 16 areas, uh, Biden is not going to be allowed to put back the Obama regulations or to craft a new regulation anywhere in that area without congressional approval. And that's why we didn't really pay attention. We kind of all dreamed if when a Democratic president comes, he would have a Democratic Congress, but it doesn't look like it this time. So he's going to really have his hand, at least one hand tied behind his back and using his phone and his pen. Now, that's really interesting, Casey, and that's something that I have not heard anyplace else, haven't focused on. Uh, what are some some of the what are some of the important areas of regulation that that would fall into that category under the Congressional Review Act? You know, the number one thing that comes to my mind is is uh, telecommunications or internet our internet plans that we have on our cell phones um, or at home. Those are regulated by the FCC, and one of the ways that the President and Congress use the Congressional Review Act would say, "No, FCC, you're not allowed." to ban some of the cheaper internet plans. Um, and we saw internet price, prices, internet service prices drop overnight when, when, when that happened. In fact, it was such a big drop that it actually showed up in the aggregate inflation rate for the entire economy, which of course includes telecommunication and every other industry. And the uh, ch- Fed chairwoman at the time noted, wow, something's really happened to inflation here. And she dug in and she saw that it was, oh, it's telecommunication prices had a record drop. And she never realized that 
where this was coming from was coming from the Congressional Review Act and the deregulatory agenda. So Why would the that, FCC a, want to ban cheap Internet access? Uh, because they're, they're run by people in the Internet industry, particular Google. So one of, the, one of the things that cheap Internet, the cheaper Internet plans would involve would be, well, the, your Comcast or your AT&T, they could use your personal data. Cheaper plan, you pay less money, but you pay with your data, so to speak. And Google already has your personal data, so they, don't, they did not want any other company like AT&T or Comcast to compete in that personal data space. So when they were running the FTC, you know, Google alumni were running it, they said, we're going to outlaw those plans. In the name of privacy and protecting the consumer, they always have those excuses. But they were essentially telling the consumer, you have no choice. You have to choose the expensive plan where AT&T and Comcast don't use your personal data to, to compete against Google. Very interesting. So, so we've got about a minute and a half left, uh, Casey Mulligan, and 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 so I guess what I'd like to do here at the end of this segment is to talk a little bit about what's probably going to happen if you assume that the Republicans have, you know, at least a, a one vote majority or one or two vote majority in the Senate, and you assume that, uh, you know, they pick up uh, eight or nine seats in the House so that the Democrats retain control, but rather skinny control. Where are the areas that you think the Biden administration is likely to be able to do the most economic harm? Well, number one would be health care. That's been the number one area of regulation now really in this entire century. Um, and so they'll go back to that. Um, and they'll have different regulations, like reversing the prescription drug competition, you know, reversing the permission that the president gave for cheaper health insurance plans. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether he reverses the deregulation on telemedicine that allows us now to talk to our doctor on the phone rather than visiting the office. So there are a bunch of health regulations that, you know, the, the special interest in health care would like to see them back, whether it be hospitals or big insurance companies or pharma. Um, All right. We're up against the break here, Casey. But uh, Casey Mulligan, thank you very much for being on the Dan Prof Show. And we'll be back after these messages. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We are joined now by Phil Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Phil, thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. You've got a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, headlined, uh, Case for Mask Mandate Rests on Bad Data. And we're talking, obviously, about the uh, ubiquitous masks that we're all being ordered to wear in various states. Uh, what, 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 what's the bad data? What, what are you talking about there? Well, about two weeks ago, a study came out from the University of Washington's epidemiology modelers that claimed that uh, if mask mandates were imposed nationwide, basically, we could save as many as 130,000 lives by uh, the beginning of February of next year. And this study circulated all over the world, uh, had over 100 newspaper headlines from the New York Times on down, uh, was cited by the NIH director, Anthony Fauci, Joe Biden's uh, transition team. All of these people are invoking this study to claim that, hey, if we just uh, adopt a national mask mandate, 
we can save 130,000 lives. Well, I looked into the data behind the study and discovered it was built around a, um, an unambiguous statistical error. Uh, basically, what the modelers had done is they used old surveys from back in April, May, and June to assert that uh, only 49% of Americans were wearing masks at this time. So therefore, if you mandate that and you increase that to something like 85 or 90% of Americans, uh, then obviously yeah, the implication is that you can save uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. But it turns out the more recent data, including surveys that have been taken basically from July up until the present day, show that mask use has increased to over 80 percent in the United States right now. So to put it real simply, this IHME uh, projection was based on the assumption that only 50 percent of Americans are wearing masks. And in fact, 80 uh, percent are. So so what what they're right. trying to achieve and what they say would save a lot of lives, in fact, has already happened. That's exactly the case, and it's providing scientific misinformation to the public. It's uh, creating this false impression that Americans are, are being bad. They're not wearing their masks as, as instructed, and yet poll after poll after poll shows mask compliance is extremely high right now. Yeah, for better or worse. You know, I've been writing about this outfit, IHME. They're at the University of Washington. I think they're lavishly funded by the Bill Gates Foundation. And I've been following their work since early in the COVID epidemic. And every single prediction they've ever made has been wrong. I've attacked them a number of times. Uh, their, Their projections have been frankly, worse than useless, you know, and, and right, soon, right. whenever they, they, they turn out to be wrong, then they, they go in and they tinker and they change them and, and the new ones are wrong again and they change them some more. I, I've, I have been really unimpressed uh, with the work that they've done throughout this, uh, this epidemic. I think that's exactly right. Uh, and it's even more concerning than that. So this paper was published on October 23rd and it was given a, a very expedited review by Nature Medicine, which is the top journal in epidemiology and medicine. Uh, I think it only took one week between when they submitted it to the journal and the journal accepted it. This is basically unheard of in the scientific world. Uh, But I caught the error on it the day that it came out in print when Fauci and all these other officials are talking about the uh, the, the study, uh, because I had been working in the polling data that showed mass usage rates were much higher than what they were claiming. I wrote the journal, uh, wrote the editors, and alerted them to, uh, to the problem in the study and said, hey, you need to issue a correction. You need to at least update your numbers to reflect the reality right now. And it took uh, almost two weeks for me to get a response. And when I finally got a response, they they were just kind of blowing me off, dismissing me, saying that, uh, well, that doesn't really matter, even though this false statistic is being cited all over the country as a justification for a policy that we don't need. You know, nowadays we hear a lot of talk about science, right? So follow the science. Well, it turns out a lot of the science is really bad, and scientists are every bit as subject to bias and uh, trendiness as as anybody else in our society. I think that's exactly the case, and the danger here is, you know, we've had eight months of this now of bad scientific claims being made, predictions by groups like IHME or Neil Ferguson over in the UK that are, are just wildly wrong, wildly off base, that takes its toll in the public's trust in science. So one of the great dangers that we have here is by people overstating their evidence or pushing wrong evidence onto the public, 
is that uh, you know eventually the public's going to start becoming skeptical of the exact type of advice that they need to be hearing from scientific advisors because so much of it's corrupted, so much of it's polluted by misinformation. And so much of it is clearly agenda-driven. You know, there, there's a reason exactly. why a study like this uh, gets rushed through the review process and gets picked up by hundreds of news outlets because this is what they want to hear. This is what they want to publicize. And, and you know, scientists are every bit as susceptible to, uh, you know, to those pressures as, as the rest of us. We're going to go to a break here in just a few seconds. We're talking with Phil Magnus, and we're going to have more with Phil when we return from, uh, from these commercial messages. Oh, I The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. We are back on the Dan Prof Show with Phil Magnus. Phil, before the break, we were talking about your discovery of an obvious error in a very widely publicized uh, study by this IHME group out of the University of Washington, where they just, you know, made a wrong assumption about about how many Americans are actually wearing masks. But I want to move on to a, a different and I think even even bigger topic, and that is, uh, are the masks doing any good? You know, I, I've looked at uh, a lot of charts that people have created that show cases of COVID or hospitalizations or deaths, and and they have that chart, and then you put on it the date, you know, if there was a shutdown ordered or the date when there's a mask mandate ordered, and you you can't, in place after place, you, you can't see any difference. Right. That's the big concerning thing. Now, I, I differentiate between mask use as like a personal mi- a risk mitigation technique or mask use if you're going into an area where people are at high risk from COVID. But the way that this has been presented is if it was like the latest of the, the magic bullet solutions to fixing the pandemic. And we heard this all summer that if only people would wear masks, uh, we wouldn't get a second wave. This is how you prevent um, a future outbreak. And lo and behold, it turns out that we were oversold on what masks actually did, because Americans did comply with mask uh, advice from the government. Uh, we see over 80% have adopted them, and yet uh, here we are in the, in the fall again, and cases are rising. So, uh, uh, like, the magic bullet didn't work, and we've seen this all along throughout COVID with other uh, prescriptive answers, like the lockdowns that we had in the spring. Turns out that uh, they didn't really do what they promised to deliver on. And yet here we are again with uh, half the country seems like it's on the verge of going back in the lockdown. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the governments uh, around the country adopt these policies and basically it's lockdowns and masks are the are the arrows they have in their quiver. They don't work. But what do they do? They then double down on the failed policies and say, well, this next time the lockdown is going to be even more severe. Yeah. And not only that, but they're doubling down on policies that do have clear harms associated with them, especially on the lockdown side. Not only the economic harms of uh, unemployment shooting through the roof again, people being uh, basically forced into poverty, uh, but you have mental health issues are on the rise, you have suicides on the rise, substance abuse, uh, the lack of cancer screenings and other types of, uh, of medical treatments that are being deferred. When you have kids missing society. out on school, you know, there's millions oh, exactly. of kids that are basically losing a whole school year, maybe more. Exactly. And this is going to be something that has societal repercussions for decades to come, 
and we're pretending as if it's just like this light switch we can turn on. And it turns on the light switch doesn't even work. It doesn't even do what it claims to uh, to do. Yeah, you make a good point there, Phil. One of the one of the ways I put it is that the the benefits, the alleged benefits of these uh, lockdowns are uh, speculative and hypothetical, whereas the damages done by the lockdowns are huge and patent indisputable. That's absolutely the case. And if you go back uh, just uh, a few months before COVID, I was reading a report the other day from Johns Hopkins University, their, their big epidemiology center, one of the leading centers in the world. And this was September 2019. They were talking about a hypothetical virus transmission into pandemic phases, so uh, something like influenza. But they, uh, one of the things that they said in the report is they warned that quarantines should not be used. The dangers exceed the benefits, and then the evidence that these things even work uh, has never been proven. So the epidemiology profession prior to COVID, a significant portion of it was actually against the lockdowns that everyone seems to have rushed to embrace. And I'm sitting here asking the, the question, what has changed in the evidence since then? And if anything, our experience has proved that lockdowns do not work. But for whatever reason, the evidence just seems to be irrelevant to these uh, governors and and bureaucrats who who keep going back to the same file, uh, failed policies. I think one of the things going on here, Phil, is that in the very beginning, um, people talked about the fact that this coronavirus is is basically a seasonal flu virus, or is like a seasonal flu virus. It's related to the common cold. And uh, and so there was speculation early on that it might just disappear when the weather warmed up, you know, in, in May and June. And that didn't happen. It didn't disappear, although although um, although it, the spread seemed to slow down. Well, now we're seeing right. faster spread. And some of that's just due to more tests. The more the more tests you run, the more cases you discover. Uh, but but I think part of what's happening in you know, all likelihood is that, yeah, indeed, this is a seasonal flu virus and we're getting into the flu season. Yeah, it was seasonal, and it also seems to have some regional variation, regional moves. So, like, the Northeast was really hard hit back in the spring, and cases dropped off substantially there And it, as it moved into the South, and then it moved into the West Coast, and now it seems to be moving into kind of the Midwest and the Great Plains state. Uh, so there's clear viral transmission that's occurring, but it's working on a regional basis, and it seems like things like seasonality, population density, uh, regional proximity are better explanations of what's really going on here than any of these top-down policies that uh, the government keeps imposing without any evidence that they actually work. Now, Phil, it seems to me that the things we've always known about disease transmission are once again proving true. So, for example, you mentioned you mentioned uh, rural areas. That's, that's that's right. I mean, I live in the upper Midwest, and and we're having a lot of cases right now. Yeah. And states like the Dakotas, which early on seemed like they're almost immune, you know, hardly any cases, yeah. almost no fatalities. Well, now now you know the disease has reached them. Well, you can go back to the Black Death in the Middle Ages. You know, people had no idea what was causing it, wiped out half or more of the population of Europe. But one thing people knew was that you didn't want to stay in the city. You know, even even in the 14th century, people who had the means to get to get out of the city would head for the countryside. I think we're seeing the same thing. Obviously, diseases spread faster in heavily populated areas. They spread slower in rural areas, but inevitably they spread. It's almost like we've forgotten about how viruses work, not not even just going back to the Middle Ages, but uh, the 20th century. There were several major flu pandemics that happened in 1957, 1968. We also have the, the infamous one, the Spanish flu in 1918. 
And the overwhelming lesson that we see from all of these historical incidents of the 20th century is that they, they did not have lockdowns imposed. Or when they attempted things like quarantines, they found that they didn't work as claimed. So uh, we, we basically tossed out the better part of, of a century of accumulated knowledge about how viruses work uh, to move back to this uh, almost old medieval-style top-down quarantine as the way to deal with the coronavirus. And the effects of it are, are, are basically not there in evidence, yet the social harms and the economic harms it's doing are pervasive. We're talking with Phil Magnus. We're going to go to a break, and we will be back with more on The Dan Prof Show. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I want to talk for a couple of minutes about a, uh, a lawsuit that's going on in, in Massachusetts. We've had a, an appellate decision in this in this case. And it's a really, really important case, and it's one that's going to test whether we really do have at long last a conservative Supreme Court, which we keep we keep hoping for, but we keep not getting. And 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 the lawsuit I'm talking about is the one that has been brought against Harvard University for race discrimination, and it's brought primarily by a group of Asian students. And if you look at what's going on in the universities nowadays. Uh, and this has been true for decades. Affirmative action uh, has had a huge thumb on the scale on behalf of certain minorities, but not all minorities. So blacks get huge credit for, for their race. Hispanics get considerable credit for their race. Whites get mildly discriminated against. And Asians get massively discriminated against. And in fact, if Harvard and many other uh, selective universities didn't discriminate against Asians, they would make up a very substantial portion of the student body. And so what they do is they decide what mix they want, what ethnic mix they want in an incoming freshman class, and then they jigger the numbers to, to get the result that they're looking for. And what that does is it suppresses the number of Asians and to a lesser degree the number of whites. How do they do that? I mean, if an Asian scores, you know, a perfect score in his SATs or whatever, he's got a 4.0 grade average, how do you discriminate against him? Well, the answer is that they've got a subjective scoring system that they put on top of those objective measures. And they rate applicants in areas like leadership, you know, on these subjective things. And what they do is they systematically downgrade Asians and whites in those subjective areas, even though the people doing the downgrading haven't even met the applicants. You know, so it's obvious they're just doing it as a way of uh, jiggering the numbers to give them the racial balance that they're looking for. Well, as you can imagine, Harvard University is a very powerful institution in Boston where the suit is venued and the district court federal judge uh, found against the plaintiffs in that case. The case then went up to the First Circuit Court of Appeals, which which uh, is the Court of Appeals basically for New England. And just a few days ago, they affirmed that lower court ruling and, and they held that it was legal for Harvard to have this race-conscious admissions uh, program. And, um, and that's not a surprise. The first, uh, first uh, uh, circuit is a, is a very liberal uh, appellate court. But the case is now headed for the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And a lot of people don't realize you know, that people think Brown versus Board of Education said it's unconstitutional for government to distinguish on the basis of race. No, it didn't say that. It didn't say that. And, and the Civil Rights Act hasn't been construed as saying that either. Uh, and in fact, uh, race discrimination gets approved in a variety of circumstances. And so this case is going to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we're going to find out whether we really have a majority now at last on the Supreme Court that's willing to say no. Uh, no race discrimination means no race discrimination. At Harvard, that even includes you. So keep your eyes on this case. It's a very, very important lesson. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. If you are not familiar with Powerline, I recommend it to you. We have been publishing... Uh, News and commentary every single day since uh, May of 2002. We're up to uh, well over a billion page views. So if you've been missing out on Powerline, uh, you can find us at powerlineblog.com or you can just Google Powerline, either one word or two, and we will be the first thing that comes up. We've got some great guests scheduled for today's show. I want to start by talking a little bit about about one aspect of this year's election that I don't think has gotten as much uh, attention as it probably deserves. And it's one of the silver linings. You know, I think right now we're all discouraged about the presidential election, uh, which is not shaping up positively at this point. Um, and and at the same time, we're, we're relieved and, and, and happy that uh, Republicans have made gains in the House of Representatives. We still don't know exactly how many seats. And in all likelihood, in my opinion, have held on to the Senate. We'll see what happens down in down in Georgia. And I believe that if you look at the total number of state offices, state legislative uh, seats, the Republicans actually gained ground. Uh, the Democrats had thought that they were going to capture a number of uh, state legislative uh, assemblies. That didn't happen. I don't think they flipped any. And the Republicans flipped, I believe, two in New Hampshire. And that's important because it means that in most states, and in particular most swing states, uh, the Republicans are going to be in charge of redistricting following the 2020 census. And that always, uh, always uh, is, is important. So there was a lot of good news in the election. And what I want to talk about uh, is a piece of good news that, as I said, I don't think has gotten as much attention as it really deserves and as we've all seen in recent, in the last few years, the, the left has tried to make every darn thing about race. Uh, whites are all racists. America's racist. Everything's about race. You know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement um, and critical race theory and, and uh, anti-racism training being put on by major corporations and by government entities and, and you know, all about uh, all about race and, 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 and how to remedy this alleged, you know, systemic racism that they like to talk about. The fact is the American people don't much like that kind of talk. The American people, a large majority of the American people don't believe uh, in, in racism, don't believe that skin color is destiny, don't, don't like being treated as a member of a demographic group instead of an individual. 
And they don't like the idea that government uh, discriminates among people on the basis of their race. And, and, and that proposition got tested this year in California in a really interesting way because some years ago, California's voters adopted a ballot proposition by majority vote that banned uh, race and sex discrimination uh, by this California state government. I'll just read the language. This is currently the law in California as a result of that ballot proposition passing uh, several years ago now. It, it, it read, the state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education, and public contracting. That's currently the law in the state of California. Now, you might have thought that was the law everywhere. Wait a minute. Isn't that the 14th Amendment? Well, it should be. It should be the 14th Amendment, but no. In fact, that's not the law everywhere. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court has approved in a variety of contexts, uh, race discrimination, as well as other forms of discrimination by state and local governments and by the federal government. So so that's the law in California. Well, the powers that be don't like uh, that law. They want to be able to discriminate primarily on the basis of race. So this year in California, they brought up what's called Proposition 16. It was on the ballot. And Proposition 16 was intended to or would have repealed that ban on race and sex discrimination in California. And Proposition 16 was heavily supported by the California establishment. Uh, It was backed by uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, by Kamala Harris, a senator, formerly attorney general of California, the entire uh, state Democratic establishment. It was backed by the teachers' unions. It was backed by Hollywood, and it was backed by a number of star athletes who wanted to demonstrate how, how woke they are by, by uh, reinstituting the right to discriminate on the basis of race and sex in the California government. And, and because it was the position of the establishment, uh, Proposition 16 enjoyed an enormous, an enormous financial advantage. They raised millions and millions of dollars, and 90% of the money that was raised in favor of race discrimination came from contributions of $100,000 or more. And one individual, uh, the wife of a a real estate developer, uh, single-handedly contributed $3.5 million and loaned an additional $2 million to the pro-race discrimination campaign. The wife, uh, Netflix's CEO is a guy named Reed Hastings. His wife contributed a million dollars to support race discrimination. The Kaiser Foundation Health Plan gave $1.5 million. Now, why the Kaiser Foundation Health Plan wants the government to discriminate on the basis of race and sex, I can't tell you, but they contributed $1.5 million to that campaign. Pacific Gas and Electric, the big utility company in, in California, which just came out of bankruptcy, by the way, gave $250,000. Uh, to support uh, race discrimination. Now, uh, why they had 250000 to spare, having just come out of bankruptcy, I, I cannot explain. Now, the opposition to Prop 16 didn't have any similar establishment donor base. It wasn't Hollywood. It wasn't big business. It wasn't Silicon Valley. In fact, 70% of the money that was donated to oppose this proposition, allowing race and sex discrimination, 
came from uh, donations of $1,000 or less. And it was reported in the days leading up to the election on November 3rd that the backers of race discrimination, the backers of Proposition 16, were outspending their opponents who wanted to maintain the ban on race and sex discrimination. They were outspending their opponents by a ratio of 10 to 1. Well, you know, (laughs) what hope do the opponents of race discrimination and sex discrimination have? They're outspent 10 to 1. The entire establishment is arrayed against them. Uh, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, uh, the the teachers' unions, um, the utility companies, uh, athletes uh, cutting ads, you know, vote for Prop 16, restore the right to discriminate. And, of course, they never quite put it that way. They tended to put it in terms of uh, diversity. And, and the summary that went on the ballot of Prop 16, the summary that the voters read was allows diversity as a factor in public employment, education, and contracting decisions. And, and the text says it permits government decision-making policies to consider race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in order to address diversity by repealing constitutional provision prohibiting such policies. That's what it said. And by the way, the reason why Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley, is now, I don't know, 50% or more Asian is specifically because of that ban that was enacted on race discrimination in education. They, they, they can't stack the deck anymore. So, so that's, that's the way it's shaped up going into this year's election. And, and the good news is that Prop 16, which would have restored race and sex discrimination in California, went down to a decisive defeat. 43.5% of the voters supported Prop 16, 56.5% opposed it. And it's really interesting because the opposition to, to Prop 16 came in considerable part from minorities. Uh, the supposed beneficiaries of of race discrimination and so-called diversity, and yet they didn't like it. It, it wasn't popular with them. And, and in fact, if you go back and look at polls over the years, it's been a consistent finding. Americans don't like race discrimination. If you talk about education, if you talk about employment, and if you ask the question, do you think, for example, that schools, colleges, should take race into account in, in admissions or do you think they ought to go solely on merit? For example, one poll in 2016 found that 70% said they should go solely on merit, and only 26% said that schools ought to consider racial or ethnic background. And, of course, we've got litigation going on right now against universities like Harvard that, uh, that discriminate against Asians primarily, but, but also whites. And that's something that we might talk about later in the show. But anyway, one of the really positive outcomes of this year's election was Proposition 16 going down to a resounding defeat, even in the state of California. And you might think if there's any place it could pass, it would be California. But it went down to a to a, uh, a resounding defeat, 56.5 to 43.5 percent. We'll be back with more after these messages. Well, we're- seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Jed Babin, former United States uh, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense and contributor to the Washington Times and the American Spectator. Jed, thanks for being on the Dan Proft Show. Hey, great to be with you. So you had a piece in the American Spectator called Biden's Non-Mandate. And at the moment, things are not looking great on the presidential front. And I think all of us are a little depressed about that. But but uh, your message in this article is that other than that, the election really went very, very well. Um, talk about that. Why do you say that Joe Biden hasn't got a mandate? Well, just look at what really is a mandate, John. Uh, back in 1980, Ronald Reagan beat the tar out of Jimmy Carter. Reagan won all oh, about 489 electoral votes, which is almost exactly 10 times the number of Carter won. Uh, and he won by about 9 million popular votes. So that's a mandate. That's something that was a rejection of Carter and his agenda and an adoption and vote in favor of Reagan and his agenda. So if you look at what Biden won by, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, he has 290 electoral votes to Trump's 214, which is a fairly big margin, but it's not overwhelming. And he won by about 5 million popular votes. So there's no mandate there. There's no blue wave, you know, as uh, as you well know, probably better than I, you know, there's no blue wave to wash the Republicans out of the White House or control of the Senate. It looks like the Republicans are going to retain control of the Senate. And I think the Republicans picked up, what, eight or ten seats in the House. So Biden's win gives him a mandate for precisely nothing. You know, Jed, let me let me stop you there for a second, because I think there's another element as well. And that is when Reagan won in 1980, he ran on a very clear program. Uh, it was a program of change and it was substantive. So when people voted for Ronald Reagan, they were voting for an agenda. And he went into office and he implemented that agenda as much of it as he as he could. And and basically, Absolutely. basically, in this election, uh, Joe Biden ran on the platform of not being Donald Trump. And so a lot of <laughs> yeah. people voted for Joe Biden, but it's hard to say that they voted for any particular program. Well, I think that's exactly right. You know, the biggest issues in the election were the pandemic and Trump's personality. You know, they accused Trump of everything from racism to incompetence to whatever. And, you know, we've already gone through I don't know how many years of impeachments and attempts to spy on Trump's campaign and things like that. And, you know, the left never accepted that, that Trump was a legitimate president. You know, but we have a very great difference also, I would point out, between the Reagan election and the Trump election, you know, frankly, Reagan was the last ideological Republican we had, the ideological conservative president. And we have not had one since. George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, certainly Donald Trump, they were not ideological conservatives. And we need another ideological conservative if we're ever going to think about getting the White House back. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because Trump certainly it did not sound like a traditional conservative uh, when, when he started his race, um, and, and I was not a Trump backer during the primaries. I, I supported somebody else as long as there was somebody else, you know, still alive uh, in the primaries. But when Trump took, and, and the reason was because I didn't think Trump had uh, a solid ideology or a solid history as a conservative. But I was pleasantly sur- surprised when Trump got into office. Didn't he govern in a really, you know, fundamentally conservative way? Well, in foreign policy, yes, I so certainly agree. I mean, getting out of the uh, Iran nuclear deal, getting out of the intermediate range uh, nuclear treaty with Russia, you know, doing things like that, getting out of the Paris Accords on climate change. He was a very good ideological conservative there. 
However, if you look at government spending, government growth, I mean, those things are anathema to conservatives. And, you know, Trump had absolutely no interest in reducing the size of government. So, yes, on foreign policy, no on domestic policy. Well, let's go back, Jed, and, and talk more about this year's election and some of the bright spots, because um, here's one that you didn't mention. Um, you know, not only did the Republicans gain in the House and probably hold the Senate, we'll see, but I think they will. Uh, the Democrats had really hoped to flip a number of state legislative chambers to put them in a position to dominate redistricting after the 2020 census, and they completely failed to do that. Well, you're much more up on that than I am, but I'm sure that that is another failure by the Democrats. And I think that's one of the reasons that Nancy Pelosi is a lot less popular now than she was before. I mean, she embraced everything that was anti-Trump and, you know, even part of the squad, the so-called squad that uh, advocates the Green New Deal and all sorts of other radical, idiotic programs. But they really seizing on the Republicans' continued gains in the state and local governments is a good way to look at it. You know, we look at local politics, like Tip O'Neill always said long, long ago, all politics is local. And if you see that in local elections, state and local elections, you see a much more populist move than you've seen in a very long time. And that's certainly attributable to Trump. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. The Democrats have tried hard to make Republicanism just anathema. You know, Republicans are all racist, whatever, you know, all the smears that they have repeated every single day for the last four years. And it's kind of amazing to me that they haven't been more successful. Honestly, Jed Babin, I saw a Gallup poll shortly before the election that I forget the exact numbers, but it was just party identification, Democrat, Republican, independent. And ever since the New Deal, most of the time, there'll be more people who describe themselves as Democrats than Republicans, even when Republicans are winning elections. But in this last Gallup poll before the election, there was 1% more. I think it was like 29, 28, and then a bunch of independents. But there's 1% more describing themselves as Republicans than Democrats. I think that's kind yeah, of extraordinary, think, given the bashing that we've been taking in the press. Well, even more extraordinary, if you look at the way Trump grew the Republican vote among minorities. You know, I think uh, going back between 2004 and 2016, uh, black men and women gave about 88% or 95% of their votes to the Democrats. In 2020, Trump won about 18% of those votes. So that's a huge, huge gain for the Republican Party and an expansion of the Republican agenda into the minority community that hasn't happened before. And I think that might be a portent of things to come for the Democrats. They're not going to be real happy about it. But I think the Republicans have a tremendous opportunity. Well, I think they do, too. What do they need to do, Jed, in your view? I mean, they got to build on the gains that, that Trump made with minority voters. And it's kind of like the dam bursting. You know, when 95 percent of blacks are voting Democrat, there, there's a kind of a social pressure there that's hard to resist. But when you start talking about 12, 15 percent or whatever, 18 percent of black men voting Republican, it's pretty hard to, to maintain the boycott, isn't it? Well, I think it is. And I think that a lot of Black people are now thinking more for themselves than they were in earlier years. I mean, let's look at the, the black and Hispanic communities, frankly, the Jewish community. They've basically been zombies marching in step with the Democrats. And I think a lot of people now are starting to think of mm, maybe the law and order agenda is a lot more important. You had a summer of riots. I mean, I'm sure you I know you've covered this extensively all through the summer and, and into the fall. We've had, I don't know, daily riots in Portland, Oregon. They just reelected their idiot mayor who didn't put down the riots. 
And well, I his opponent was a communist, so there's that, right? <laughs> yeah, well, there is that. But then again, there's Bill de Blasio, but we can, that's for another day. Uh, you know, the real issue here is I think people are looking around them and saying, I don't want that for my community. You know, my family's safety is more important than the Green New Deal. And I think that's something where people can reflect on it. You know, defunding the police, oh, that's a great idea. Minneapolis wants to try a holistic approach to policing. Yeah, that's going to work really well with murderers, rapists, and robbers. We are talking with Jed Babin, and we will be back with more after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We are back now with Jed Babin, former United States Deputy Undersecretary of Defense. And Jed, I'd like to turn the focus now to foreign policy, and in particular, uh, the Middle East. There's been talk about uh, Joe Biden re-entering the Iran deal uh, and otherwise uh, trying to reverse uh, Donald Trump's uh, highly successful Mideastern policies. What do you make of that? Well, Biden has said flat out that he's going to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal which is probably the worst move he could make in uh, any part of his presidency. If we remember that deal, basically it provided for economic relief from sanctions for Iran. Uh, We now also have the expiration of the arms embargo against Iran that happened in mid-October. And, you know, Iran is going to be enormously strengthened. We know, for example, and they have been for a long time, but we know from the latest report by the International Atomic Energy Agency the uh, UN's agency to supposedly monitor nuclear proliferation, uh, that Iran has 12 times the amount of enriched uranium that is supposed to have under the nuclear deal that that, uh, Obama signed. So they've been violating it. They are violating it. The inspections regime is a joke. It's a tragedy. And, you know, Biden is going to upset the entire Middle East by doing this. He's going to damage Israel's security, damage the relations that uh, Israel was starting to have with with other Arab states, Uh, And, you know, it it may very well be a turnaround of everything Trump has accomplished. You know, President Trump's policy was the opposite, really, of Barack Obama's. Obama had this fantasy about a an alliance between the United States and and the mullahs in Iran. And I could never understand what what his thinking was there. But in any event, Trump did the opposite. Trump's policy was to try to isolate Iran, viewing them as the real source of instability in the Middle East, which they are as major sponsors of terrorism and, and of military threats. And so uh, he isolated them economically and he isolated them politically and he fostered these alliances between Israel and the formerly hostile uh, Gulf Arab states. Why on earth would Joe Biden want to reverse that successful policy? Well, I think his interests are in preserving partly Obama's legacy and his own. He wants to revive that deal. He also wants to do it to suck up to our European allies, uh, Britain, France and Germany particularly, which have been really hard at work trying to preserve the nuclear deal. And he looks at that as a way to leverage the allies to other things, whatever else he might imagine. We have to remember, John, that Biden is a multilateralist. And it's a very important point. He is not going to do anything that our allies are not going to go along with, which means they have a veto on his policies, which also means that he's not going to do anything 
about China or Iran or Russia that the allies don't go along with. And they're not going to go along with a doggone thing. They have vested interests. I mean, hell, Germany and a lot of Europe is now dependent on Russian gas for energy supplies. And, you know, they're not going to do anything to, uh, to rock that boat. So I think Biden will be much more the multilateralist. And I think Trump was, you know, certainly willing to disrupt things and, you know, act on uh, America's interests alone. And uh, Biden's not going to be able to. and He's not willing to do that. Yeah. One of the things that President Trump did was to really stand up to both Russia and China in ways that the Obama Biden administration never did. And uh, those policies, I suppose, are going to go by the boards, too. Is that right? Well, of course. And, you know, also is the policy that uh, our NATO allies are supposed to help defend themselves. I mean, Biden's not going to pressure them to spend on defense. He's not going to pressure Russia. He's going to want to make friends with Putin. He's not going to pressure China. And uh, Lord only knows where his son is uh, economically involved in those regimes, too. So, you know, the basic point here is, again, Biden is such a man who is a follower, not a leader. He is not going to do anything that our allies don't go along with. He talks about getting our allies to do this, that, and the other thing. Well, what if they don't want to? He's going to stop. And at that point... Well, Russia, China, and Iran are going to do whatever they please. We've got about a minute left, Jed, and I want to f- uh, finish with, with this question. Um, Donald Trump was maybe the most pro-Israel president we've ever had. He, he moved the embassy to uh, Jerusalem after one administration after another promised to do it. And I think Congress, didn't Congress pass legislation saying let's do it? But, of course, it didn't yep. happen. And then he, he uh, recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights and in every way was, was very pro-Israeli. Do you think that's going to turn around under uh, President Biden? I think it's largely going to turn around. I don't think it'll be as bad as under Obama. I mean, Obama was anti-Israel, and there's no two ways about it. And I think Biden will shade that a little bit, but he's going to try to make more of uh, the Palestinian influence. I mean, Trump's one of the main accomplishments of his deals with the Middle East was to make the Palestinians irrelevant, as they have been for a very long time. Biden's going to continue to suck up to them. And, you know, we'll just have to see if Israel can survive all this. I think it will. But Israel, without America's backing, is much less of a regional power than it otherwise should be. And if they can't rely on us, and at this point, I don't think they can. If they can't rely on us, they're very, very much alone. They'll be as isolated as Iran should be. Jed Babin, thank you for being on the Dan Prop Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, all eyes have been on the U.S. election here for for weeks now. The election is now. Ten days, I guess, in the rearview mirror, and most people think it is all over but the shouting. But yesterday morning, uh, President Trump did a, uh, a phone call with the press, and he expressed confidence that he can still win the election and vowed to continue fighting. And um, what I'm going to refer to here is Byron York's uh, Daily Memo newsletter. It comes out every morning. If you don't get it, you really should. Byron's a great guy, and and it's got uh, good information uh, every day. And so he's talking here about the phone call that Trump did with reporters uh, yesterday morning. And he walked through the situation in the in the states uh, where the, where there still is is potentially some doubt. And he says we're going to win. Uh, we're going to win Wisconsin. He says we're going to win Arizona. 
It'll be down to 8,000 votes, and if we do a, an audit of millions of votes, we'll find 8,000 votes easily. Uh, he says, Georgia, we're going to win. We're down to 10,000, 11,000 votes, and we have hand counting, hand counting coming up in Georgia. I'm not sure that's right, but he says if we get hand counting, uh, we're, we're going to win. And the big ones, of course, are Michigan and Pennsylvania. And the fact is that Trump can't get enough electoral votes by turning around one state with litigation or with recount or whatever it may be. He's got to turn around three. And uh, that's really uh, defying all all possible odds. And um, and with respect to Michigan and Pennsylvania, this is what he had to say in the, in the phone call yesterday with reporters. He said, well, these are two big states. And he said in, in Michigan and Pennsylvania, he's, he's pinning his strategy on protesting the exclusion of his campaign's observers during critical periods of vote counting. And this is a quote from Trump. He said, they wouldn't let our poll watchers and observers watch or observe. That's a big thing. They should throw those votes out that went through during those periods of, of time. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit because this is something I've written about on Powerline. I've studied the complaint in, in uh, Pennsylvania that the Trump campaign and two individuals filed there. And Trump is absolutely right. And I think it's important that we make a, a, a basic distinction here. One question is, was there voter fraud? Were there irregularities on an industrial scale in this, this year's presidential election? The answer to that question is yes. I don't have any doubt about that. I think the evidence grows every day. There's a totally separate question, though, which is, is there a viable way to identify and prove that industrial strength um, voter fraud and irregularity in the time that the Trump campaign has remaining? And the answer to that question, I think, unfortunately, is almost certainly no. And I think it, it's helpful to talk about Michigan and uh, and Pennsylvania because Biden's apparent margins in those states are substantial. And when you talk about a recount, uh, there have been three statewide elections in the last oh, 50 or 60 years that have been flipped by a recount. And one of them was in my home state of Minnesota. You probably remember it was how Al Franken got into the Senate, uh, winning that uh, allegedly winning that race uh, against Norm Coleman by, you know, 300 votes or something. But in every case where a statewide race flipped on a recount, the margin was only a few hundred votes. There's no instance in the last 50 years of a statewide race where the margin is even in the thousands where a recount has reversed the result. And the reason for that is recount means what it says. All they do is they recount. And so very minor errors can come to light. But if there's 50,000 fraudulent ballots in the count, a recount doesn't take them out. And so and so let's go back to Philadelphia and Michigan and to the point that, that President Trump made in his call with reporters yesterday, because he was absolutely right. And this is laid out in, in detail in the complaint in uh, Pennsylvania. Under Pennsylvania law, it is required that, that the major parties have representatives present while absentee or mail-in ballots are being are being opened and are being uh, evaluated. Are they, are they good or are they not good? Do they comply with the law? Do they not comply with the law? And then counted once they've been, once they've been judged uh, uh, either appropriate or not. 
And, and what happened in Pennsylvania is that the Republican observers didn't get to do that. Initially, in some precincts, they were simply locked out, simply barred from entering the building. They went to court and they got a court order where the judge said that these Republican uh, watchers, they call them, poll watchers in Pennsylvania, they have to be within six feet so they can see what's going on. And so after a delay, the Democrats set it up so that the closest table uh, to the Republican poll watchers was six feet away from them and they're behind some kind of a barrier. But then all the other tables where people are counting ballots and evaluating ballots are you know, back farther than that. And the Republican poll watchers can't see a thing. And so they were unable to carry out their function of participating in, in deciding which of these mail-in ballots complied with the statute and which ones didn't, because there's a lot that don't. A, a substantial percentage of mail-in voters make errors that invalidate their ballots. So, so there's something like, in the state of, um, in the state of Pennsylvania, there's something like 670,000, some such number, of ballots that got approved and counted without the participation of the Republican poll watchers. And one of the things they're asking for in that lawsuit is for all of those 670,000 ballots to be thrown out. And if that happened, I'm, I'm quite certain that they were heavily enough uh, Biden in Philadelphia County, same thing in Allegheny County, which is Pittsburgh, also happened, uh, that that would flip the election to Trump. I think he's right about that. And that's what he was talking about when he talked about you know, winning Pennsylvania and Michigan. The problem is that I don't think there's any way in the world that any judge or any appellate court is going to go along with throwing out uh, 670,000, whatever that exact number is, hundreds of thousands of, of ballots simply because the statute wasn't followed and the Republican poll watchers didn't get to observe them being counted. I, I think if that happened, uh, that would be viewed as a massive disenfranchising of hundreds of thousands of voters. And I don't think there's a judge or an appellate court that has got the, the stomach for that kind of a remedy. And so I think what we're looking at here in these big states in particular is a situation where the wrong is clear. The, the voter fraud has been documented. But adding up ballot by ballot by ballot, which ones were fraudulent and therefore can be thrown out, is frankly, in, in the time that we have here especially, it's frankly an impossible task. And so... That's why I commend President Trump for fighting. I commend him for pursuing these lawsuits, and I commend him for shining a light on this problem of voter fraud that we've had in this country for about 150 years. Uh, but I don't think at the end of the day it's going to end of states to reelect uh, President Trump. The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker filling in for Dan tonight. And I'm coming to you from Minnesota. And I can't tell you how many times over the last couple of years. Friends from around the country have said to me, my gosh, how does Ilhan Omar get away with it? Uh, you know, she's been on a crime spree. All these scandals have come to light. She's openly anti-American. Uh, she's got this extreme left-wing orientation. She's the most ungrateful person in the world. You know, American taxpayers uh, rescued her from a refugee camp in Kenya in a civil war in uh, Somalia. 
And all she can talk about is how terrible American taxpayers are, how we're all a bunch of racists and so on, haven't done a thing for her other than, of course, electing her first to the Minnesota legislature and then to the United States Congress at a very young age. And so friends from around the country will say to me, my gosh, she can't possibly get reelected, can she? I mean, do people not understand how far left she is, how, how corrupt she is? Uh, she's violated, you know, she's committed tax fraud and a number of other offenses, marriage fraud. Um, and, and I try to explain that she represents a district that really is that crazy, or at least maybe that crazy. And so, and so this year, she was up for re-election, having just completed her first term as a member of the House of Representatives, representing Minnesota's 5th District, which basically consists of the city of Minneapolis and first-tier suburbs. That's essentially the district. And, um, and a bunch of Democrats uh, got together, and they said, well, look, this district is so heavily Democrat that the only way she's going to lose is in the Democratic primary. So they found a candidate who seemed credible, who was a good candidate, and he raised a lot of money to oppose Ilhan Omar in the Democratic primary, and she completely crushed him. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't close. And so that went to the general election. And the Republicans nominated a guy, another black guy, his name is Lacey Johnson, a businessman, successful, a terrific candidate, really a good guy, an excellent candidate. And he also raised a lot of money. There was a, there was a lot of resources uh, to try to, uh, to oppose Ilhan Omar. And again, she crushed him. Uh, she got, I think, 65% of the vote. She got the second highest vote total of any of the eight winning Congress people here in uh, in Minnesota. And it's not because the voters uh, don't understand that she's on the far left. It's not because they haven't heard about the the crime spree and the various kinds of fraud and so on. They know those things and they're in favor of them. I mean, they're really, and this is really the point I'm trying to make. You know, it's hard for us to understand this sometimes as conservatives, but there are places in this country, Minneapolis is one, Seattle is one, Portland is another, and there's others where people really are that left wing. There really is a constituency for people who are openly and nakedly anti-American. You know, you wouldn't think that would be a good program to run for the American Congress. <laughs> I'm opposed, you know, to the United States of America. I think it's irredeemably evil. Uh, but yet there are districts and there's probably a pretty good number of districts where you can say that to the voters and they will respond by pulling the lever for you. And that was the depressing reality that we learned when Ilhan Omar ran for re-election here in Minnesota. This is the Dan Proft Show.